Can you do that? He's completely innocent of all wrongdoing. He's, I'm getting carried away. He's completely innocent of all, of of any wrongdoing. So Pilate, don't give in to the crowd. Stand firm, Governor Pilate. And don't be swayed by the crowd. Because you know that this one who stands before you is blameless. He's blameless, he's innocent of any of their accusations. Do you have a conversation like that? Or is this me? (laughs) But we also know from scripture that humanly speaking, there was one closer to Pilate, the governor of Judah that day than anyone else. And who sent him a message, also concerned about what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus Christ, this innocent one who was on trial before Pilate. And Matthew is the only gospel writer who records this event. One sentence in Matthew's gospel 27, which we've just read, verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Some versions say righteous. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So what do we know about Pilate's wife? I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Pilate's wife before. What do we know about her? Well, there's not much really. We do know about her. One writer describes her as the only Roman woman mentioned in the Gospels. She was a high-ranking, well-educated and wealthy woman. Tradition has it that her name was Claudia Procula. Whether this was her real name or a contrived name, it's hard to say. Tradition also declares, it's not scriptural, but this is what tradition says, that she became a Christian or that she may have been a Christian at the time when Christ was standing before her husband that time. And apparently in the Abyssinian and the Greek Orthodox churches, the wife of Pontius Pilate is considered a saint. And she is commemorated on St. Claudia Procula's feast day, which is held on October the 27th. However, the Bible, which is our final authority, gives no details of who this lady was, other than being the wife of Pontius Pilate, the then governor of the Roman of Roman occupied Judea at that time. But certainly it was the incident itself and what this woman did and who the dream was about that the scriptures would have us focus on. The details of Pilate's wife's dream, we're not told. But whatever the content of that dream was, it so disturbed her that she felt compelled to act immediately. And it was a brave thing that she did because forgetting all the repercussions of what her actions could have, could have meant, she spoke up. She nonetheless sent this one-sentence message lest her husband condemn, condemn to death this innocent and righteous man. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he suggests this. 
Whether she dreamed of the cruel treatment of an innocent person or of the judgments that would fall upon those that had any hand in his death or both, it seems that it was a frightful dream and her thoughts troubled her. For as she said, I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Interestingly, another writer says of this lady, Pilate's wife is the only recorded person who spoke up against the decision to kill Jesus. Interesting comment, isn't it? We certainly know that there were others, quite a few others, who considered Jesus innocent of his accused crimes. For example, the Roman centurion, after watching Christ die, declared surely this was a righteous man. Luke 23, 47. But again, as Matthew Henry ironically explains, he says this. When his friends were afraid to appear in defence of him, God made even those who were strangers and enemies to speak in his favour. When Peter denied him, Judas confessed him. Matthew 27 verse 4 is what he's talking about there. When the chief priests pronounced him guilty of death, Pilate declared that he found no fault in him. When the women that loved him stood afar off, Pilate's wife, who knew little of him, showed a concern for him. Can't help but just sort of feel there's a, maybe a little bit of an unfair comment made in there. But it's interesting anyway what Matthew Henry says there. But as it seems to me, not only did this lady show concern for Jesus, but certainly for her husband, the governor, who must be warned not to commit this sin by condemning this innocent, just and upright man to death. Bible commentator Albert Barnes, he adds this comment as well. He says, dreams were considered as indications of the divine will. And among the Romans and Greeks, as well as the Jews, great reliance was placed upon them, upon dreams. Her mind was probably agitated with the subject. She was satisfied of the innocence of Jesus. And knowing that the Jews would make every effort to secure his condemnation, it was not unnatural that her mind should be so disturbed during her sleep, perhaps with a frightful prospect of the judgments that would descend on the family of Pilate if Jesus was condemned. She therefore sent to him to secure, if possible, his release. How many of us have had disturbed dreams? Hey? Sure, I'm not the only one. I'm sure many of you here could testify and identify with this whole experience of having disturbed dreams during the night. Got to be careful. Sometimes you might ask yourself, is that God speaking to me? Is it something in my conscience not right? Is the Holy Spirit prompting me? That could be a question or it could be, what on earth did I eat last night? Or what did I watch on TV last night? You know, those sort of questions. But you know, I, I wonder, 
I wonder how urgent you and I might feel towards a loved one that we should likewise hurry to warn them about sin in their life. You know, about sin that would condemn them. Or to plead with them not to do this thing. Not to do this thing that's harmful and wrong. Have we ever had that urgency? Like Pilate's wife, she had to hurry and tell him through a messenger to plead with don't do this don't do this harmful and wrong thing lest they ultimately incur the wrath of a righteous and just God who warns us all in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 for example saying the one who sins is the one who will die and the Bible also teaches us in James chapter 5 verse 19 and 20 saying, brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander back from the, wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns the sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I also like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about this. He says, when you and I go out to warn men and women of sin, we're not alone. All providence is at our back. When we preach Christ crucified, we are workers together with God. God is working with us as well as by us. Isn't that true? A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to read part of a testimony of a dear brother who comes to this church. He may even be here this morning. I have his permission. And he described how one day while overseas, he had some business to attend to overseas. But so did God, you see. Because he met a street evangelist who obviously felt compelled to share the gospel of Christ with him. I can imagine the street evangelist doing that, rolling up to this guy. I've got to tell you this. Well, he shared the gospel with my friend, and then he asked him if he wanted to commit his life to the Lord Jesus. My friend said, yes. Incredible. And not only did he say yes that day, what I found incredible was that he, my friend was baptised that very day. This bloke took him back to his church and he baptised him that same day. How amazing. Reminds us, does it not, of what happened in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian. Here's water, what prevents me from being baptised? Let's do it right now. But as parents, I'm talking a lot of parents here today. Parents, out of love and concern for our children, do we not warn them of the dangers of making wrong and harmful choices in their lives and with their lives? So we pray for them and we teach them by example to show them, even as imperfect as our own examples are at times, I know that, God knows that. We don't get it right every time, do we? 
But we seek earnestly to, to live consistently by the grace and empowering and enabling of God, a life that role models to our kids, a life that really does work, a life that's fulfilling, a life that's loving and is based on making wholesome, wise and good decisions in life. Good choices, don't we? And God instructs us. He, he instructs us to do these very things. He instructs us to teach our kids these very things. For example, even in Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 18 to 21, listen to these words. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. As many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Fix these words of mine, he says, in your hearts and minds. Because you're going to hear, and we do hear, so many other words out there and influences that are not mine, says the Lord. In such a warped, twisted and perverted world, how urgently we need to warn and teach our children the very things that God warns and teaches us about in his word, correct? So again, my brothers and sisters here this morning, may we fix his words in our hearts and in our minds. As for Pilate, though he knew that this Jesus was innocent, he still refused to listen to the warning from God that came via a dream from his own wife. Juan Wiersbe says this, Bible column commentator Wiersbe, he says, Pilate knew what was right, but refused to do anything about it. He was willing to please the people. Judas yielded to the devil in his great sin, but Pilate yielded to the world and listened to the crowd. Pilate looked for the easy way out, not the right way. And he's gone down in history as the man who condemned Jesus. And again, C.H. Spurgeon, he has an interesting thought, provoking comment on this as well. He says this, It will not be a piece of mere imagination if I conceive that at the last great day, when Jesus sits on the judgment seat and Pilate stands there before him to be judged for the deeds done in the body, that his wife will be a swift witness against him to condemn him. Wow. So guys, men, if there's a lesson in here, listen to your wives. Sometimes. But you know, this is what I really believe really counts here as we continue to reflect on this Good Friday service. And it's this. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, was and is that innocent man who was willing to choose to become the Lamb of God. As John the Baptist described him in, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, which says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love the fact that it says he takes away the sin. He doesn't cover it over. He doesn't hide it somewhere. This Jesus, this Lamb of God, takes it away forever. And just like the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament that had to be spotless, they had to be without imperfection, they had to be without blemish or defects, so Christ, so Christ, the Lamb of God, was such, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. He's the one who fulfilled and finalised every Old Testament sacrifice because he was without spot or defect. Jesus was, as Pilate's wife had so rightly declared him to be, innocent, righteous. He alone was without sin. And he gave himself as a sin sacrifice on the cross for you and me. God in Christ, out of his deep love for us, did this. So that we could be set free from our own sin, from our own condemnation. So that we could be forgiven and made right before a holy, righteous and just God. With whom we will one day, praise his name, spend eternity. All because of the cross. All because of Good Friday. Paul writing his second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can't get my head around that. What does it mean? He who knew no sin became sin. But that's what happened. So that you and I could stand spotless and faultless before the presence of the Most High God. So powerful. So cleansing. It was the blood of Jesus. The Bible also says this in John 3.16 and verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life what a magnificent promise can you say amen to that this morning verse 17 let's read that one for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him he's the only one that can save us you won't find salvation in anyone else the bible says there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
The mystery of God's salvation plan. This is the amazing thing. His love, his salvation plan is in the scriptures. Prophesied. His plan for us, for a lost and fallen humanity, is amazingly revealed. Prophesied throughout the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, even beginning in the first book of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, there's references made to the agony and to the victory of the cross. For example, when, when God curses the serpent in the garden, serpent being Satan, he says this, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And that's a reference to the cross. There are other Old Testament prophecies, and I've just listed a few of them here. If you're quick, you can write them down. If you want me, I'll send them to you. But look at these just briefly. Other Old Testament prophecies that speak about the cross of Christ include this, that where Christ is, Christ is rejected, his rejection by most people, prophesied by Isaiah 53 and verse 3, fulfilled in John 1.11. His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12, and fulfilled in Matthew 27.4-7. His crucifixion alongside sinners, again Isaiah 53.12, and fulfilled in Matthew 27.38. His hands and feet were pierced. Look at Psalm 22.16, it speaks of that. And fulfilled as we know. John 20, 27. His legs were not broken, unlike the others that were crucified with him. And that was the thing, to, to hasten death, they would smash the legs. For Jesus, no bones were broken, prophesied. Psalm 34, 20, and fulfilled in John 19, 33 to 37. Even his clothes being gambled for, prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18. And then we see fulfilled in John 19, 23 to 24. This whole psalm, Psalm 22, what a magnificent psalm of David it is. And it amazingly has so many other parallels to what Christ suffered on the cross. A thousand years before he was even born. Pilate's wife was right. When she described Jesus in that message to her husband as that innocent man. Because I believe that's what she heard God say to her in a dream. That innocent man. That was the message that she sent to her husband who didn't listen. Making her husband Pilate the governor even more culpable for condemning that innocent man. But the thing is, of course, all this was prophesied that would happen. And because Jesus alone was and is that innocent one, he was therefore qualified to bear the sins of the world. The just for the unjust. To be slain as the lamb to take away our sin. Again, Christian writer Kay Brooks says this, Calvary's cross was the main point in the coming of Jesus into the world. 
His death was the object of his incarnation. The glory of heaven is not Jesus, a great ethical teacher, but Jesus, the slain lamb. Look at Revelation 5, 6 to 12. Revelation 7, verse 10. Revelation 21, 23. As I close this morning, I have a question for you to consider over this Easter. It's a simple question. But you might wrestle a bit with the answer. Question, it's like this. How open are you to God's voice in your life? Yep, God still speaks through dreams and visions today. He does. And there are many of you who could testify to that, I'm sure. But primarily we believe he speaks through his word, the Bible. So again, are you listening? Are you listening? Today, are you listening? Some of you may have been to so many Good Friday services, you probably couldn't count them. But I'm going to ask you this morning, are you listening for God's voice today? Will you make it a challenge for yourself? Listen for his voice over this Easter. Just this Easter. Listen to his voice. And I want to suggest four things that will help you to listen for God's voice in your life. Four things, very briefly. Firstly, one, make it a habit to read a few verses from the Bible every day. Make it a habit just to read a few verses. Don't get overwhelmed by it. But just have a time when you read just a few verses. Ask God to speak to you. There's so many helps in this way. There's many devotional, daily devotional books available at Christian bookstores and even online. <clears throat> so make it a habit to read a few verses from the Bible every day. Secondly, if you're not already doing this, get yourself along to a Bible-believing church where you will be encouraged, where you will be taught from the Bible and where you will hear God speak to you personally. If you're not in the habit, get yourself along to a Bible-believing church. Thirdly, share your thoughts daily with the Lord in prayer. Come to him in prayer. Open up your heart. Let him see what's there. Cast your burdens upon him. Let your cares be known to him. Do you know what? He already knows what they are. There's no secrets that you can hide from God. But he loves it when you let him know everything. Tell him, even with tears. There's been more than just one occasion I've blubbered before God. I'm not afraid to, <laughs> to testify about that. But let God know how you feel. Tell him. Share your thoughts daily with him in prayer. And listen for him. Listen to what he might be wanting to say to you. Have his Bible. Have your Bible open. Listen. Fourthly. Ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you may even grow, grow even more sensitive and obedient to God's voice in your life. I guess I'm speaking to Christians when I'm mentioning these four things. But if I'm speaking to someone here this morning and you don't even know who Christ is, then my plea to you is this. Then you need to open your life to Christ and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. 
I know that. Your Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lord, I'm in that category. I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm asking that you you forgive me of my sin. That's why you died on the cross. That's why we have Good Friday. Lord, forgive me of my sin. And I'm asking that you come into my life. I'm sick of trying to run my own life. I don't do a good job of it, Lord. I make a few blues along the way. But you're perfect. Your plan is perfect. Would you implement your plan into my life? Because I'm opening my heart to you right now, Lord Jesus. Forgive me. Take away this sin. You're the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That means mine. Take my sin away. Make me clean. Make me that new creation that you've promised to do. For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Do you believe that this morning, folks? You see, that's what God wants for you. You need to make the first start. And that is, if you don't know Jesus, then you open your heart to him. Ask him to forgive you of sin. Repent of your sin. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I repent. I turn from that. And I ask you to come into my life. Look, there's folks here this morning who would love to talk with you, share with you, pray with you. Please feel free to do that after our service. Can I just pray for us now? Father, we thank you for what this Good Friday means. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the characters around the cross that we've been looking at. Even Pilate's wife. Only you know where she is now. But we thank you that she had the courage to stand up and say, don't kill that innocent man. And yet, Lord, we know that that was the very reason that you came to this earth. Was that you would not be killed, but you would give your life. No one took your life away. You gave it willingly. You gave it for us. Because that's what it cost. That's what it would take to free us from our sin. It was the blood of Jesus. It was no, no, no teaching, no ethical teaching, no religious teaching would do that, Lord. But it was your blood. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, hear our hearts this morning that we are so grateful Help us to ponder this truth throughout the rest of this day, over this Easter season, and even beyond, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, and help us to have ears that hear, hearts that hear your voice. And Father, I'm going to ask us to do this, not just to hear, but to be doers, to be obedient to what you call us to do. We thank you for our time together, and we commit ourselves into your hands, and we thank you that we're able to spend this time together here, and perhaps with families and loved ones as well later on. Thank you for this time. We commit ourselves afresh into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless your church.